today as we have the joyful opportunity to celebrate the fact that Jesus is risen, that he is alive, and what that means for people like you and I as we navigate the world that is en route to the world that is to come, and we live by faith in the fact that Christ is risen. And so we have a lot to celebrate today. We have a lot to be excited about, and we want to uh, live and study the scriptures over these next few moments in light of the fact that Christ is risen, that he is alive, and he is speaking to us even now to remind us of that reality, to build up our faith, to encourage us so that we might grow in our awareness of all that the resurrection entails for us. So if you have your Bibles, I'm encourage you to grab those and turn them open to Luke chapter 7 as we look at a beautiful story that puts the theme of resurrection before us. You know, my first encounter with death happened when I was seven years old. I remember distinctly my grandfather, we called him Daddy Archie, dying in a hospital of an infection that was most likely the cause of human error and caused by human error and And I remember when the phone call rang to, the phone rang to deliver that news. I was standing in my mother's bedroom looking in the mirror and I heard my mother shriek and so I froze and just stared at my reflection. I knew what news was breaking in my mother's mind, in her ear and in her heart and she didn't even have to tell me that my grandfather had passed. It was was evident and so I just stood there, frozen, dumbstruck. But I wasn't crying in that moment, and the reason for that is because the day before, I went to visit my grandfather in the hospital, and and as a seven-year-old kid, they wouldn't allow me into his hospital room because of the infection, and they were afraid that I would just add more germs to the equation and all these things, so that I could not go in to visit him and to be with him and to see him face-to-face, and And so my Uncle Charles, who's a big man, he took me outside and he walked me around back of this rural hospital there in central Louisiana. And he picked me up, put me on his shoulders, and my grandfather's room was close enough to the ground that I could peek over the windowsill and see him in his bed. And I remember him turning and seeing me standing there, and he just lit up with a big smile and started waving, and I started waving. And and then the reality of not being able to go in and embrace him and him embrace me like we had done many times before, that reality set in, and I just lost it. And we left the hospital that day to drive a few hours back to my house, and, and I was just weeping and crying the whole time. And so when news broke the following day, my tears were tapped. I didn't have anything left in me. And I remember being devastated, but I couldn't conjure the tears as I was just dry. I remember going to the funerals, my first experience with a funeral, and everyone there was, as you would imagine, everyone was sad, everyone was grieving, everyone was mourning the loss of my grandfather. Dressed in black, there was a somber, somberness to the atmosphere, a gravity to the equation that just was uh, tangible. But I remember interacting with my grandmother, and I recall just the strange look on her face. I remember distinctly as a seven-year-old kid looking in her eyes as she was mourning the loss of her husband, and and there seemed to be just a bit of a a, a glimmer remaining in her eye, a, a little twinkle. And although she was sad, and although she weeped, and although she was mourning, it It was apparent to me and to everyone who interacted with her that day that she was grieving, that she was mourning, that she was weeping, not as a person without hope. She seemed to believe that one day she would see her husband 
again. And that bolstered my faith as a seven-year-old kid as I began to think about Jesus and what it was, this difference he was making in her life in that moment. And I began to put some the pieces together in my own heart. And my faith began to blossom in reaction to the faith that I saw being exercised in her life as she mourned the loss of her husband. Jesus was clearly making a difference in her life in that day. And I wanted that difference to be evident in my life too. You know, one of our passions and desires here at the Hallows Church is that we hope to help people discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life, recognizing that Jesus makes a difference in all of life. And that includes how we face the reality of death and sadness and sorrow and and mourning. And so I want us to look today at this passage in Luke chapter 7 as we see Jesus making a difference in the life of this grieving woman who's experienced terrible tragedy in her life. And yet Jesus would bring his kingdom to bear on her life in such a way that would flip the script on that tragic occasion. And he literally turns he, makes, he brings a triumph out of this tragic scene that you see happening or unfolding beginning in verse 11 of Luke chapter 7. So we'll read out the whole story, follow along in verse 11. Afterward, Jesus was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him just as he neared the gate of the town. A dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was also with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep. Then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearers stopped, and he said, young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report about Jesus went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. So the passage begins with this tragic scene unfolding as Jesus has traveled from a place called Capernaum to Nain. Now Nain was a small rural town, population probably no greater than 200. Everybody knew everybody in this town. If you were to go to the Middle East today, you, this town still exists with a similar population footprint. It's a small place and yet Jesus goes there after he leaves Capernaum. And you have this sense of providence of the Lord leading Jesus through his life and ministry to bring him in contact with this woman who is suffering terribly. Because as, as he entered the town called Nain, he saw this caravan of weeping mourners who were leaving a funeral, heading out towards the burial site. And he senses the sadness and the sorrow and the grief that is tangible in the atmosphere as he encounters this woman whose life has been wrecked by death. And it isn't the first time that death has wrecked her life. We, she's described as being a widow because pre, prior to this moment, death took her spouse, took her husband, took the one that she exchanged vows with and committed her life to. 
Death took the one that she shared a house with, a bed with, that she had a child with. Death has struck and taken her, him from her life. Leaving this widow to this woman to face the world on her own as a widow, which is a vulnerable position to be in in antiquity. As widows and orphans are often coupled together in the scriptures because widows and orphans are viewed and they were some of the most vulnerable members of society. This is who this woman is as death took her spouse. But she did have a little hope because she had a son who was growing up under her roof and she was loving and raising. But we're told on this occasion death struck again. And sorrow upon sorrow is added into her soul as death took her only son. And the emphasis there is her only son. See, this woman had the hope of raising a son, which was the desire most Jewish women shared in antiquity. This was the longing of most Jewish women's lives as they wanted a son who could carry on the family lineage and who could preserve the family name and move it forward into the future. This, was, this son represented her hope for a, a good, blessed future. This is why, if you remember, when we were studying through the book of 1 Samuel, we came across Hannah's story. And if you remember, Hannah was a woman who did not have a child, though she wanted badly to have a child. And she prayed and prayed and prayed because that was the desire of her heart. And then one day the Lord blessed Hannah with a child. And that child was viewed as a blessing because it would carry the family name and the family history forward. And, and this was the hope of this woman too, as she had a son, an only son, who would do that for her legacy, her lineage, her family history. But we're told that death stepped up and proved to be the enemy that it is. Death stepped up and took her son away just as it previously took her spouse away. Now, the death of a child is perhaps one of the greatest agonies possible. Some of you have been there. You've experienced this in your own life. And There's a man by the name of Joseph Bailey who lost three sons to illnesses and to accidents, and he comments about the sorrow and the agony that he endured having lost a child and his words are worth hearing. This is what he writes, of all deaths, that of a child is most unnatural and hardest to bear. In Carl Jung's words, it is a period placed before the end of the sentence, sometimes when the sentence has hardly begun. We expect the elderly to die the separation is always difficult, but it comes as no surprise. But the child, the youth, life lies ahead with its beauty, its wonder, its potential. Death is a cruel thief when it strikes down the young. And it's proven to be a cruel thief in this woman's life, taking her spouse taking her son, and as a result, death has taken her security, her future, her life. And this is kind of illustrated in the scene that Jesus saw when he showed up in Nain. Because the caravan is leaving the funeral, heading to the burial site. The dead man is being carried on a pallet by pallbearers, and, and a caravan of weeping people are following suit. But leading the train would have been this woman, walking out in front by herself, heading to the gravesite. It was customary for the one most closely connected to the 
to the lost person, to the dead person, to walk out in front. And the image is striking when you consider this woman walking into the, moving forward into a future where there doesn't seem to be any life before her. Life is behind her. Her future before her seems to be just a graveyard, seems to be a wasteland. As death struck her spouse, struck her son, death has shaken up her security, stripped her of a hopeful future. It is a tragic, tragic scene. But then notice what happens. In the midst of this tragic scene, a tender Savior shows up. Jesus walks into Nain and he does for this woman what he champions and encourages being done in his kingdom later in Luke's gospel when he points out his heart for the individual, his heart for the person when he lays out the parables of the lost coin or the lost sheep and the lost son saying this is a picture of Jesus doing what he's going to parabolize later in Luke's gospel. This is a tender savior seeking the one person who is hurting the most in this moment proving to be a tender savior. And you notice what happens when he shows up. We're told that Jesus saw her, that the Lord sees her. And he sees her in her sorrow. He sees her in her affliction. He sees her in her sadness. He is not unaware or indifferent towards the suffering she's experiencing in that moment. He sees her in a way very reminiscent of how God saw the people of Israel when they were oppressed as slaves in Egypt. And the Lord saw his people in the midst of their afflictions. And upon seeing them, he decided to do something about it. Well, this is what's going down here as Jesus sees this woman in her hurting, in her suffering, and he decides to do something about it. And he does what a tender savior does. He enters into her sadness He takes her emotional state upon himself when we are told that not only does he see her, but he senses something in this moment. Compassion begins to swell up within him. His heart begins to break for the scene unfolding before him as he senses compassion. And this is the most common emotional response Jesus gives in his life and ministry. The most common emotional response he has as he's walking through our broken world is compassion. And he saw a lot of suffering throughout his life and ministry. He saw hungry people. He saw hurting people. He saw spiritually oppressed people. He saw a lot of suffering in his life. And yet Jesus never grew indifferent or calloused in the face of it. Jesus did not experience compassion fatigue that is so common among us when we see suffering in the world around us. And we see so much affliction and so much oppression and so much trouble that we grow calloused, we grow hard, and we become indifferent towards it. Jesus never got there. When he sees suffering, he senses compassion. He stirred deeply to do something about it. And it is this sensitivity to the suffering of this woman that would compel him to act, that would compel him to go to work on her behalf. Now, if you've been journeying with us through the Gospel of Luke so far, you've perhaps noticed that the emphasis in this Gospel has so far been on Jesus' authority, Jesus' power. But now we're kind of turning a corner and we're seeing the emphasis falling 
yes, on his authority, but there's another aspect being drawn out in this moment, and that's his compassion. And this is one of the most remarkable and wonderful things about our tender Savior, about our Jesus. It's the combination of his authority and his compassion, of his power and his desire. You see, authority without compassion is a recipe for tyranny. It's a recipe for oppression. It's a recipe for brutality. Compassion without authority is impotent. Compassion without power can't do anything to remedy a situation that is being ruined and ransacked by death and suffering and sorrow. But here in Jesus, what goes down? In Jesus, we find this wonderful, this wonderful combination of authority and compassion, of power and desire. We find the one who not only can remedy the ills of this situation, but the one who wants to. This is the beauty of our Savior. If you consider the wonderful combination of his authority and his power stirring up in this moment. See, Jesus has the power and the desire to help hurting people. He has the power and the desire to help sinners and sufferers like you and I as we are confronted with the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. And so Jesus sees her. He senses compassion. And then notice what he does. He speaks. He opens his mouth and he speaks a word. He says to the woman some strange words. He turns to the widow and he says, don't weep. Now, that's not really the type of thing you would do if you were at this funeral and you were attending this occasion. You probably, it would probably be out of bounds for you to tell this woman not to weep because you don't have the authority Jesus does. But Jesus looks at her and says, don't weep. And then he turns to the dead man and he speaks to the dead. And you find the word of Jesus reaching down into the depths of death where it can be heard even there as he turns to the dead man and he says, get up. And we're told in verse 15 that the dead man sat up and started to speak a remarkable resurrection as Jesus brought life out of death by speaking a word. The type of power here is unrivaled. It's unparalleled. This is the type of power that was present in creation. In the beginning of the Bible, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord hovered above the emptiness and the chaos of darkness and a sea. And then what happened was God spoke and his word brought order out of the chaos. His word brought life out of that emptiness. His word did the work of bringing life to be. And here Jesus is doing the same thing, speaking a word. And when he speaks, things happen. Now, this doesn't happen very often in the Gospels. Jesus only resurrects a dead person three times in his life and ministry. So it's a remarkable moment that Jesus is putting before us to consider because it is designed to teach us and to drive us in a certain direction. And the people there who see this dead man sitting up from his pallet and starting to speak, they start to get the point. At first, they're afraid, as you and I would likely be if we ever saw somebody dead coming back to life. We would think zombie. We wouldn't think life because that's just how we are. But they're thinking life, and, and we should think life as this man is coming back to life, and he starts to speak, and then Jesus 
tenderly gives him back to his mother. A tender moment of reunion. And so the people there who see all this happen, at first they're afraid, but then they start to glorify God. Their fear begins to move in the right direction as they start glorifying the God who's capable of doing what they just saw. And everyone is glorifying God, recognizing that a prophet must visit, a prophet must be among them. That Jesus must be a prophet because they were aware of other instances in the Old Testament when God used prophets to do this type of thing. And so they refer to Jesus as a prophet. And what you begin to see is how this story isn't just a blip in the matrix. This story is a tethered story. It's another chain in the link It's another link in the chain of God's redeeming activity. It is all the details that Luke is putting before us are intended to cause us to think back to two instances in the Old Testament when God raised a widow's son from the dead. The first happens in 1 Kings chapter 17 with the prophet Elijah. And then Elijah had a guy that he invested in named Elisha. Elisha also became a prophet. And the Lord used him to do something very similar, to raise a dead son and to return him to his mother. And so everything that Jesus is doing here is designed to connect this story to a much bigger story. As it is tethered to all of God's redeeming activities. But here's the difference. The difference is when Elijah and Elisha raised those sons from the grave, they had to pray to God for it to happen. They prayed for it to occur. They talked to the Lord, and they used lots of words. They, they did some dramatic things. Elijah, Elisha even kind of draped his body on top of the corpse to, to show his emotive connection in that moment and to show his passion and desire to see God work a miracle in that moment. And they were doing all sorts of things that prophets did to see God work in the world. But here, what is Jesus doing? Jesus doesn't pray to anyone. Jesus talks directly to death. He speaks to the dead son, says, get up. And this dead son gets up and starts speaking again. You see, Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's the true and greater prophet. Jesus doesn't just bring God's word to bear on our lives. Jesus is the embodiment of God's word in the world. This is why John would tell us that In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there came a moment when the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us because Jesus is the true and better prophet. He is the embodiment of God's Word speaking directly to the chaos and the confusion of death and bringing life back from it. See, this is a tethered story. And it tethers us to a couple of things. It tethers us to past promises where we realize that everything that Jesus is doing is a part of a global cosmic agenda where God has promised to restore all things and to rid all of existence from sin, Satan, and death. This story is a reminder of that as it takes its place as a link in the chain of God's redeeming Activity. Now, there's a remarkable promise that you and I should be encouraged by today. In Romans chapter 8, verse 38, we are told this promise that, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a promise to us. It is a promise that stories like this reinforce in our hearts as those who have put our faith in Jesus. We now become a part of this chain of redemption as we rest in the fact that things like that are true for us. And nothing is going to separate us from the love of God that we find in this tender Savior who is speaking life back into this dead son. There's another dynamic to the story where after, after they all recognize a prophet has risen among us and they were saying far more than they realize when they say that, but then they say God has visited his people. And this too was a common reaction people gave to, to the Lord's activity in the world when God would work a miracle through prophets and others. He would, they would say God has visited us, God has shown up. Well, they're recognizing that here, saying God has visited his people. And if you want the message of Easter put in a nutshell, that's what it is. The message of Easter is God has visited his people. That he has come into our broken world in the person of Jesus. And he lived a perfect life of obedience, one without sin. And he endured suffering so that he might rescue sinners and sufferers from theirs. And so he would live this perfect life only to go to the cross to give up his life. And three days later, he would resurrect from the grave, stepping out of the tomb victorious over sin, Satan, and death. And in response, we can say God has visited his people. He has come to work a miracle on our behalf. This is why we have hope. This is why we put our faith in Jesus and in no other person. God has visited his people but there's another dynamic I want you to think about when you consider how Jesus is ministering to this widow. And if you are a follower of Jesus and you're a part of the Hallows Church right now, identifying with us, running with us, trying to figure out what Jesus wants us to be here in Seattle, this is what he wants us to be. We are the body of Christ. And as we step onto tragic scenes to minister to hurting people, the reaction and the response should always be God has visited us. That God visits people right here, right now, through the ministry of presence that his people provides. We are the body of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit engaging in the pure form of religion that James 1.27 would affirm. Well, we're told that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to do what Jesus does here, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Justice and holiness, two variables in the equation of pure religion. Sometimes in our society, we put a wedge between those two. We focus on the justice aspects to the neglect of pursuing personal holiness. But James will not let us do that. Because one of the ways that we remind people the reality of God is by being his representatives in the world. This is why Peter would say, as the Father is holy, you also be holy. As you represent me to the watching world, as you step into the crevices of the broken places and spaces of life to minister to hurting People, you, you do so in a way that calls their attention to the reality of who God is and what God is like. 
We want people to say every time they interact with our faith family, God has visited his people. As we live in this city and minister to people who are mourning and weeping, who are grieving currently without hope, we want to bring the hope of the gospel to bear by being the presence that God empowers us to be right now. So you have this story that is tethered to to various, well, it's tethered, it's a story that tethers us to past promises, but it's also a story that tethers us to future realities. That this story is designed to cause us to look back and to hinge forward. As this story reminds us of where all of history is heading, it is a foretaste of what Christ will do for all of the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation that he will usher in when we have that moment when all who are dead in Christ rise and they hear the word of Jesus again saying, get up, and they get up. This is what we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for we say this to you by a word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for dying or who have dead, who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with an archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. The future reality that we are tethered to as a result of what Jesus has done for us is one of resurrection. Knowing that death will not defeat us. But just as Jesus stepped out of his tomb, one day we will too. But there's another element here. We will be resurrected in the new heavens and the new earth. All will be made new. But notice what Jesus does for the woman one more time. He took this son that he brought back to life and he gave him back to her. And suddenly you have a picture of how death seeks to separate. Death seeks to divide. Death seeks to destroy. And Jesus does what? He reunites He reconciles. He brings back together. So not only in the future will we be resurrected, we will be reunited as the family of God experiences the ultimate family reunion seated around the table of grace that is the new heaven, that is found in the new heavens and the new earth where we engage in the marriage supper of the Lamb and we share a feast together that will catalyze the rest of our eternity, filling it with life and joy And peace and presence relating to Jesus and relating to one another in a way that cannot be interfered with. Can't be interfered with by sin or suffering, not even death. This is the future reality reality that we are living towards. This is our hope. This is our life. This is why we celebrate. And this is why we are who we are in the world right now. People living by faith. Not people living by fear. You see, fear has a tendency to project into the future what is currently happening. And if you've ever been sorrowful, if you've ever suffered, there's a very real temptation for you to take that present experience and to project it into the future so that you're concluding that life will always be like that. And if that's your conclusion, life is tragedy. But faith speaks a better word. Faith brings the future into the present and lives in light of that. 
And when you bring the future reality of the new heavens and the new earth, the future reality of resurrection and reunion, you bring those future realities into your present and you let them shape you right here, right now, life ceases to be tragic. Life becomes triumph. Life becomes victory. Even in the pangs of death. Even when we are enduring real things that cause us to weep and that cause us to grieve. But we weep and we grieve not as those without hope. We weep and we grieve as those with hope. This is the beauty of Revelation 21. When we're given a glimpse of what life will be like when all is said and done and history reaches its climax with Christ's return and the consummation of his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth, we're told, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will not just visit them, but he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, this is what I'm doing right now. Jesus saying, I'm making all things new. And I'm starting with you. As he speaks into our souls, bringing life from death, replacing fear with faith, enabling us to engage the world in a way that causes the world to take notice and say, God has visited his people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. We thank you for the fact that Jesus has fulfilled all of your promises for us. We thank you for the fact that Jesus will one day cause all of those promises to be experienced in their fullest sense in the new heavens and the new earth. I pray right now that you would dispel any fear from our hearts that is tempted to project our current struggles far into the future as if they will last forever. I pray that you would help us to find faith to live today in light of that future reality so that though we grieve now, we do not grieve without hope. And though we weep now, we realize that one day you will wipe every tear from our eyes. God, give us grace to be people who live by faith, trusting in all that you have promised to give us and all that one day you will do for us in the new heavens and the new earth. God, we love you, and we praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.